Go ahead and dismiss our kids to Kids Church this morning. <clears throat> As they are thankful, they don't have to listen to me. They get to go to Kids Church and be with Miss Crystal. We are so grateful for this opportunity, this ministry that we have to offer our kids. If you have your Bibles, I encourage you to open up to the book of John, chapter 6. We're going to continue to walk through the Gospel of John uh, as we continue our trek through John's Gospel. We're going to be in John chapter 6, verses 47 through 65. And if you've noticed over the last few weeks, our texts have overlapped, and that's simply because I didn't finish. Uh, so John chapter 6, verse 47 through 65. I'm hoping that today that we'll at least finish chapter 6. Chapter 6. We'll read verse 47 through 65. Jesus makes the statement as he is communicating with the Jews regarding the bread of life. In verse 47, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread which comes down out of heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread also which I shall give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews therefore began to argue with one another saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jesus therefore said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in yourselves. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true, blood, true food, and my blood is true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who eats me, he also shall live because of me." This is the bread which came down out of heaven, not as the fathers ate and died. He who eats this bread shall live forever. These things he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Many, therefore, of his disciples, when they heard this statement, they said, this is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, conscious that his disciples grumbled at this, said to them, does this cause you to stumble? What then? If you should behold the Son of Man ascending where he was before, it is the Spirit who gives life, the flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. For there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe. And it was that who would betray him. And he was saying, for this reason I have said to you, no one can come to me lest it has been granted him from the Father. Let's pray. Fathers, we see this difficult statement here in John chapter 6. Lord, may your Holy Spirit begin to speak to our hearts even now. Prepare us to hear the truth of your gospel. Lord, may our preconceived notions and perceptions be challenged this morning by the truth of your word. It's in Jesus' wonderful name we pray. Amen. 
This is the first of the I am statements. We talked about this a few weeks ago. Jesus begins these I am statements and these I am statements are, are a connection that Jesus makes to Exodus chapter three when God gives himself a name. Moses said, whom shall I say sent me? He said, tell them I am. I am that I am has sent me. And so, or I am that I am has sent you. Uh, and the, the Hebrew I am is the, is the present participle of the verb to be. And so what Jesus is saying, what God is communicating to Moses in Exodus chapter three is that I am whatever you will need me to be. I am your hope. I am your strength. I am your providence. I am your protection. Whatever it is that you will need me to be, I am who I am. I am that which you need. And Jesus is going to unpack this as he communicates the deity that he holds within himself. He is going to say, I am the bread of life. I am the vine. I am the resurrection and the life. I am living water. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. He is going to communicate to his disciples and to the multitude there in Jerusalem and Judea. He is going to communicate that I am everything. I am everything that you possibly need. And he is starting with bread. Because bread is the very sustenance of life. And so as Jesus is communicating this, he communicates this to a people who are, who've just witnessed him feed the 5,000s. They, they see Jesus make bread and make fish out of five loaves of bread and two fish enough to feed somewhere between 15 and 20,000 people, 5,000 men. And so we understand that they follow Jesus saying, give us more, do more of these miracles, do more of these works. And Jesus said, you don't understand. It's not the bread that you need. I am the bread of life. It is this bread that you need. Now, as we get to this point in the text, I want to kind of bring us back to the cultural context of John's gospel. John's gospel is the last gospel written. It was written probably somewhere in the ballpark of 90 AD. So this is somewhere 40 years, 40 to 50 years after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. This is after the destruction of Jerusalem. This is after there has been a clear division between Judaism and Christianity. And the Christian church, the early church in first century Rome, was under enormous persecution at this point in time, at the time of John's writings. Now, I want us to understand some of the accusations that were being levied against the early church because this text is going to give us some insight as to why there was this persecution. So there was many reasons why people hated the early church. There were three main accusations that, that fueled the hatred against the early church. One of those was that the early church was accused of being atheists. And you're sitting there and you're thinking, well, isn't that the complete antithesis of what Christianity is? But what they were being accused of, because remember, the church was birthed out of a pagan culture. And so in this pagan culture, they worshiped many gods. They worshiped the God of fertility. They worshiped the God of the harvest. They worshiped the God of the sun. They worshiped the, the, any and every God that you could possibly imagine. There was, there was a deity for it, and they were worshiping that. And so Christians coming out of Judaism, were monotheistic. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. And so when Christians didn't pay homage or give, or give worship or give 
uh, give money or give offerings to these, to these pagan gods, they were accused by their contemporaries as being atheistic, that they didn't believe in God, at least the gods that we believe in. Secondly, one of the things that fueled the animosity and the hatred and the persecution of the early church was the, the accusation of incest. You say, what in the world? 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 4 encourages the church to greet one another. I'm sorry, the other one, uh, I'm sorry, Chris. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 26. I apologize. He says, greet one another, greet the brethren with a holy kiss. And the early church called each other brothers and sisters. And so from outside, the early church would gather together and they were gathering with their brothers and sisters and they were having this, this love that, that permeated their gatherings. And so it was easy to make that jump from, from, from righteousness and moral living to immorality and sexual immorality that led to incestuous relationships. And so that was one of the accusations against the early church. This passage fueled another accusation against the early church, and that was the accusation of cannibalism. They accused the early church of cannibalism. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 4. We see concerning things being eaten, sacrificed to idols, says there is no other God, there is no idols, but the church is eating the flesh of Jesus and drinking his blood. We understand that, that they don't believe in, in these false idols, but they're eating and drinking Jesus's flesh and his blood. And so this passage fueled the persecution of the early church regarding the issue of cannibalism. Now, as we understand this, I want us to take a look at the text itself. Now, there are many people who would point to this text, many scholars, many teachers, many pastors, many preachers, who would point to this text and say, this is the foundational basis for the teaching of the Eucharist or the teaching of what is called by the Roman Catholic Church as trans, the doctrine of transubstantiation, which means that when we participate in communion, Holy Communion, the Lord's table, and we participate in the Eucharist, that we are actually eating and drinking the supernaturally transformed body and blood of Jesus. When we partake, when we partake of the bread, that that is the body of Christ. When we partake of the blood, that that is the blood, or that when we partake of the wine, that that is the blood of Christ. And this passage confirms that Jesus is saying, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part of me. Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no eternal life. However, theologically and doctrinally, we cannot conclude that when we, are, when we are true to the text. There's two reasons. First is a theological reason. The scripture tells us that Jesus said, if you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have eternal life. If you don't eat my flesh and drink my blood, you don't have eternal life. We read this text, it's clearly what it says. So that would mean that communion or the Eucharist or participating in the Lord's Supper is efficacious for salvation. That would mean 
The, in order to achieve salvation, in order to achieve eternal life, in order to receive the gift and the blessings of eternal life, you have to participate in the Lord's Supper. You have to participate in the Eucharist or the Holy Communion. You have to eat the bread and drink the wine. If you don't, you don't have eternal life. Well, there poses a problem, doesn't it? Because the scripture tells us that the thief on the cross was hanging next to Jesus. And Jesus said to me, he said to Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus looked at him and said, truly, truly, I say to you, if you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you'll be with me in paradise. No, Jesus looked at him and said, today you'll be with me in paradise. The scripture teaches clearly that the only thing that brings us into eternal life is faith in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. It's not baptism. It is not membership in a church. It is not eating or drinking the bread or the wine. It is nothing that we do, nothing that we're, no, no organization or denomination that we belong to or that we are a member of. Salvation is by the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, period. That's it plus nothing. And so, theologically and doctrinally, to make the statement that we have to participate in the Lord's Supper, we have to participate in the Eucharist or the communion, that that, that is part of what it takes in order to be saved or in order to become a believer is to place our salvation in our hands based upon a work or something that we would do which is completely contradictory to the doctrine of salvation by grace. Additionally, the text itself flies in the face of this being a literal translation of eating my flesh and drinking my blood. If you look at verse 45, I'm sorry, verse 35 of chapter 6, Jesus explains to them the very basic understanding of this metaphor verse 35 Jesus said to them I am the bread of life he who comes to me shall not hunger and he who believes in me shall never thirst so Jesus is making the connection of coming to Jesus with eating of the bread if you come to me you will not hunger because you will have eaten the bread if you believe in me you will not thirst because you have drinking of the cup. And so the metaphor is explained in verse 35. And so as Jesus continues this, this dialogue of eating the flesh and drinking the blood, he is picking up on the explanation of the metaphor, saying, if you come to me, you believe in me. If you come to me, you will not hunger. If you believe in me, you will not thirst. So the idea of eating my flesh and drinking my blood is equivalent to coming to me and believing in me. The text itself communicates that this is a metaphor. It is figurative in nature. We just got done singing, Jesus is the lion and the lamb. That does not mean that Jesus has orange fur and a big mane. It does not mean that Jesus is covered with white wool. Those are metaphors. All throughout the scripture we see metaphors. We see metaphors of Jesus saying, I am the door. I am the good shepherd. It doesn't mean that Jesus is standing there and he's made of wood and you have to open the doorknob and walk through him. But in John, um, Revelation chapter 3, he said, I'm sorry, 
In John chapter 10, he said, I am the door. And you have to come through me in order to enter into eternal life. There are metaphors in scripture and that's what this is. It is a metaphor. Now, I want to point out to us that any and all allusions of the Lord's Supper, of the Eucharist, of the bread and the wine, bring us to the significance of what that text means, of what is the bread and the wine. And in Mark, I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 26, verse 26 through 28, we see the meaning of the bread and the wine. In Matthew chapter 26, Jesus is sharing this last supper with his disciples and he says this, while they were eating, Jesus took some bread and after blessing it, he broke it, gave it to his disciples, said, take and eat, this is my body. And when he had taken the cup and given thanks, he gave it to them and saying, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood, blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sin. John chapter 6 was written about 40 years after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. The early church had continued this tradition of breaking the bread and pouring the cup and drinking the cup of the new covenant as Paul and the early church had commanded them. Jesus said, as often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. And so whenever they would gather as the body, they would participate in the breaking of the bread and the sharing of the wine. And it wasn't for any other reason than to bring them back and remember the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. His death that paid the penalty for their sin. His shed blood that purchased for them eternal life. His broken body, which was given for them, motivated by love. And so when we participate in the Lord's Supper, when we participate in Holy Communion, whatever you want to call it, it should bring us back to that time when we first understood that the death of Jesus paid the penalty for my sin. Now, Jesus makes this statement. Obviously, the disciples are a lot like you and I. They're a little slow on the uptake, a little hard-headed. And so Jesus has unpacked this metaphor over and over and over again. He's saying, he's saying, you have to believe in me. You have to come to me. And so after he's unpacked this metaphor, after he's done all that he can to explain to them, they look at each other and they say, how in the world could we eat this guy's flesh? And, and you, you, can almost, you can almost see in your mind's eye Jesus going, Seriously, are we having this conversation right now? But this is where we are. Look at verse 60. I'm sorry, not verse 60. Not, not there yet, not there yet. Look at John chapter 6, verse 59. These things he said in the synagogue at Capernaum. Many therefore of his disciples, verse 60, when they heard this, said, this is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? Now, Jesus' followers, the disciples, were not saying this is a difficult statement to understand. But they were saying this is a harsh statement. This is, this is difficult to believe. Not that it's difficult 
to cognitively understand, but this man has just told us we have to eat his flesh and drink his blood. Now, I believe that there are many reasons why this passage is difficult for the followers of Jesus, and we're going to look at those in just a few moments. But I want us to understand that these disciples that Jesus is referencing here, that John is referencing here in verse 60, are not the 12. Remember, Jesus has just fed people with five loaves of bread and two fish. He's just walked on water. He's performed miracle after miracle after miracle. And so there has been a huge multitude that has followed him around the Sea of Galilee. And now there's this huge multitude. And Jesus makes this statement, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no eternal life. Unless you are, are part of me and unless you connect with me by eating my flesh and drinking my blood, you have no connection to me. And so the, the, those followers, those multitude that had showed up, and remember why they showed up? They showed up because they wanted to make Jesus king. They showed up because they believed Jesus was the Messiah. He was going to lead them out of bondage to Rome. They showed up because Jesus had just fed them. Somebody feeds me free food. I'm going to show up the next day too, right? They had just shown up because, because they had saw, maybe they were witnesses of Jesus turning the water into wine. And they wanted to see more of this dog and pony show. They follow Jesus. They come to the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus makes this very controversial, this very difficult, harsh statement for them. And so, what makes this statement difficult? First of all, this teaching did not satisfy their wants. It did not give them what they want. Jesus didn't say, if you come follow me, if you give money to my ministry, then you can do all these miracles too. He didn't say, if you come, come follow my ministry, if you give money to my ministry and you participate in my ministry, then I'm going to continue to give you all this food. I'm going to continue to heal all your sick. I'm going to continue to give you what you want. But in reality... We as Christians follow Jesus in the Western world, in the Western church, for this exact same reason. We want Jesus to do what we want him to do. We want God, if we're obedient, we follow Jesus, we want God to give us a good job. We want him to give us a good bank account. We want to drive a nice car. We want to be financially secure. We want to have children that are obedient. We want to have blessings in life. And we follow Jesus so that he'll give us what we want. That's exactly why they were following Jesus. And whenever he said something that challenged their thought process, that, that didn't fit into what they wanted, they said, I don't know about this. You're asking me to do something that makes me uncomfortable? I don't know about this. Their teaching, the teaching of Jesus, didn't satisfy their hunger, nor did it fill, fulfill their political aspirations. And so they said, oh, I don't know about this. Secondly, it was a difficult statement because Jesus is making a claim to be greater than Moses. He said, Moses gave you food from heaven, and they ate it. And they died. I'm going to give you food. If you eat, you'll never die. Jesus was making the claim to be greater than Moses. Now for the Israelite people, Moses was 
of all the patriarchs, Moses was probably the most highly respected, the most highly thought of. You say, but Abraham was the father. Abraham was the father. Abraham gave birth to Isaac, who gave birth to Jacob, who was the father of Israel. But Moses was the only person in Israelite history to hold, essentially, the office of prophet, priest, and king. There was no one who was above Moses in leadership and authority. Moses was essentially the king of Israel. Moses was the one who led them out of bondage. Moses was the one who delivered them from the bondage and oppression of 400 years of slavery in Egypt. Moses was the one who interceded for them on behalf of God, who interceded to God on behalf of them. That he went to God whenever God said, I'm going to destroy these people. Moses stood in their stead. Moses was the one who communicated the word of God to them. Thus saith the Lord. Moses filled the office of prophet, priest, and king. Moses was probably the most highly thought of of all the patriarchs. And Jesus said, I'm greater than Moses. Additionally, this teaching used cannibalism, something that was, according to the law of Moses, sinful, abhorrent. He uses this teaching of cannibalism as a metaphor for eternal life. He uses this teaching of cannibalism, a sinful behavior, as a metaphor for spiritual development. This is something that, that, that they were, it, it just turned their stomach to think of. Additionally, this teaching caused them to change their thought process and their understanding of the truth. And I believe that was probably the most difficult part. Whenever we are called to change the way we think, we don't like it. We don't like when we think one way and somebody comes in and challenges the way we think and forces us to think and act differently. Because after all, that attacks our pride. That tells us the very nature of who we are, what we think, and how we believe is wrong. And that's offensive. We live in a world today where we are called by our society to be careful what we say, how we say, when we say, so that we don't offend anyone. We have to tiptoe around people's feelings Tiptoe around what is politically correct and what is politically incorrect so that we make sure that we use the right pronouns, we make sure that we use the right verbs, we make sure we use the right participles, gerunds. I don't even know what part of speech I'm allowed to use anymore. But we live in a world today where we are on edge about what we say, what we think, and what we do for fear that we might offend someone because it might challenge the way that they think, it might challenge the way that they act, the way that they believe, or the way that they, or the way that they behave. And if we, as Christians who hold fast to the truth of God's word, if we are guilty of offending someone with the truth of God's word, then the problem is with us, 
not, not with their thought process or their behavior. We don't like to be told we're wrong. We don't like to be told that the way we're thinking, the way we're acting, the way we're behaving is incorrect. And whenever Jesus made this statement to the multitude, he was telling them, the way that you've been thinking your entire life is wrong. The way that you've been thinking, the way that you have, you have placed all of the emphasis, all of the, the importance on the wrong thing. You've placed your importance and your faith and your, your eternal life. You have staked it on your ability to keep the law. It's wrong. Religion says, give us what we want. Fit our understanding of priorities and importance. Religion wants to, to make our understanding of morality and values that which is right, to maintain the status quo and to make us happy and healthy. Jesus challenged all of that. And he says, I want you to change the way you think. Go with me, if you will, to the book of Mark, chapter 14. I'm sorry, chapter 1, verse 14. In the book of Mark, he begins, Jesus begins his public ministry in verse 14. And after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God. And listen to what it says in verse 15. This is Jesus preaching the gospel of God. Jesus began preaching the gospel of God saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe. And many of you have heard pastors, teachers, preachers tell you that the word repent means to turn 180 degrees, to take an about face and go the opposite direction. And I understand the sentiment of that teaching, but that's not what the word repent means. The word repent is taken from two Greek words. The first word is from meta, which is where we get our word metamorphosis. Meta means to change. The second word is gnosis, where we get our word gnostic or knowledge from. The word repent literally means change the way you think. Change your understanding. So Jesus says this, the gospel of God. The time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Change the way you think and believe in the good news. Change the way you think and believe in the good news. The way we think, the way the Jews have been thinking, the way the religious leaders have taught them to think, is that if you obey the law, if you do what's right, if you, if you cross your T's and dot your I's, if you don't do anything bad, as long as you keep the law, then God's favor will rest upon you and you'll have eternal life. Jesus said, change the way you think and believe in the good news. The good news is that even in all of your goodness, Isaiah said, your righteousness is as filthy rags. Even the good things that you do are sinful change the way you think you're never going to be good enough you're never going to obey the law you're never going to completely fulfill the righteous requirement of the law the whole message of the sermon on the mount 
was it's not the letter of the law that I'm concerned about. It's the spirit of the law. You've heard it said, don't commit adultery. I say to you, don't look at a woman with lust in your heart. You've heard it said, don't commit murder. I say to you, if you look at your brother with hatred in your heart, you've already committed murder. Change the way you think. It's not about the letter of the law. It's not about doing this and doing that, not doing this and not doing that. Change the way you think. He tells his disciples, the multitude that are there following me. You come wanting me to fill your stomachs, wanting me to do a dog and pony show. You want me to be king and overthrow the Roman government. Change the way you think. I'm the bread of life. Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part in me. And they said, how can this be? Because Jesus said, change the way you think. It's not about eating flesh and drinking blood. It's about coming to me and believing in me. And you come to me and you want me to do stuff for you. What if, what if today, in 2022 in America, following Jesus causes you to do something that's different? What if following Jesus causes you, being obedient to Christ, causes you to take a demotion in your job? What if being obedient to Christ, following Jesus, causes you to lose your financial security? To forfeit, to forfeit promotion in your job? What if it causes you to sacrifice relationships that are detrimental to your spiritual walk? What if following Jesus causes you to change the way you think? Being obedient to Christ, being obedient to God's word is not about getting what we want, church. Drives me crazy whenever I hear pastors. You'll just have to, you just have to let me get on the soapbox here for a second. Drives me crazy whenever I hear pastors who've been at a church for two or three years and they feel God calling them to another church. And inevitably, the church that they leave is always bigger than the church that they were at before and have a bigger congregation and a bigger paycheck. Isn't it interesting that God never calls a pastor from a large church to a small church? Isn't that interesting? Isn't it interesting that God never calls a pastor from a large salary to a smaller salary? Because God's word never calls people to sacrifice, right? God's word never calls the, the, the followers of Jesus to give up things for the sake of the gospel. I find it very interesting and very peculiar that the people who are called to lead and teach the word of God and to lead the people of God always move upward in society and never down in society whenever Jesus is called to the leaders of his church is a call to humility. What if following Jesus causes you to change the way you think? It's a hard teaching. Who can accept it? This is not the 12 Jesus is talking to. These are the people who showed up because they ate the loaves and the fish and their stomach was satisfied. There are people 
who come to Jesus out of curiosity. As they have tried everything else, maybe this will work. There are people who come to the church, who come to Christ because they have nowhere else to turn. Maybe this will help. And Jesus, by His grace and by His mercy, loves them and welcomes them in. And the body of Christ should be that which demonstrates love and compassion to a lost and hurting world. But the truth of the gospel doesn't change. Jesus, by nature, calls us to change the way we think. And I want to challenge you this morning, church, to change the way you think. Christianity is not about making you happy, healthy, or wealthy. Christianity is about making you more like Jesus, who died, was buried, and rose from the grave victorious over sin and death. He has called us to be different, to live differently. Will you pray with me? God, your word teaches us. Your word teaches us that we should be different. Lord, the only way for us to be different is to completely completely yield our life to the Lordship of Christ. This morning, God, there are those here. There are those here who've been offended by the Word of God. And this morning, they're called to repent, to change the way that they think. There are those here who've lived their lives and according to God's Word and by nature offended others. Lord, may you comfort them and strengthen them in their obedience. There are those here this morning who needed to be reminded that the call to Christ is a call to obedience, is a call to be conformed to the image of Jesus, not to this world. They will know we are His disciples when we love one another, when we live peculiarly when the world looks at us and says that's different God may your Holy Spirit empower us may your Holy Spirit encourage us edify us as we gather as the body may we be encouraged to live differently to love abundantly May we be called to obedience. And we pray this morning that your church here at Redeemer, that we would be obedient, that we would serve each other, that we would serve our community, that we would be a light set upon a hill. we thank you for Christ, for his death, his burial, and his resurrection. And it's in his wonderful name we pray.